You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. And welcome to the Longroom Hub in Trinity College Dublin. My name is David Kenny. I'm a professor in the law school. It's my honour to uh, chair this event here tonight. Uh, great to welcome you here on behalf of the Longroom Hub and Tricon, the Trinity Centre for Constitutional Governance, that are hosting this event this evening. Two quick uh, housekeeping matters before we start. If you need the bathroom, you can go in either direction. There is one back out the way you came, and there are two this way. And if you need to escape in the event of a fire, the same applies. You can get out the way you came in, and also another fire exit this way. So please bear in mind the exits in the event of an emergency. And it's a great pleasure to welcome you all here to discuss the topic of women, women, family, and care in the Constitution. I think it's particularly important to have events like this during referendums. And one of the things that Tricon, the Centre for Constitutional Governance, is very keen to promote is public discussion around the Constitution and to try and have fora where we can discuss some particularly difficult issues that might be facing the country and its uh, constitutional politics, and particularly during referendum campaigns where we all kind of endure a constitutional law lecture for three weeks uh, in order to decide how to vote. It's very good to have these four where we can openly discuss things and ask questions. And so what you're going to hear this evening is, I think, some really in-depth discussion of what the proposed referendums coming up, the 39th and the 40th amendments to the Irish Constitution, are really all about. And you'll hear about that not from an advocacy perspective, but really from an in-depth analysis of their potential legal and constitutional effects, and how this fits in with uh, Ireland's constitution and our practice of referendums. It's really such a pleasure to have uh, the three people who will be speaking to you tonight with us. Uh, I think we couldn't conceivably get a, a better panel to discuss this topic. And I'll embarrass them and introduce them uh, as we go in order to give you a sense of why uh, they're the, the perfect person to talk about these particular topics. But the basic plan is that we'll open by discussing what's commonly known as the Family Amendment, the 39th Amendment to the Constitution, with Professor Conor Mahoney. We'll then move on to discuss the 40th Amendment, the CARE Amendment, as it's known, with Professor Laura Catlin. And then we'll have a sort of more general, wide-ranging discussion of both of these amendments and the Irish referendum process with Professor Aileen Catlin. So we'll basically broaden the conversation out as we go. And after that, we will have lots of time to take questions. I know our speakers are, are very keen to uh, address any questions and queries that people have. So do formulate your questions as we go, but please save them all to the end, where we'll have ample time, I hope, to get to them. So to begin, it's my very great pleasure to introduce Professor Conor O'Mahony of the School of Law in UCC to discuss the 39th Amendment to the Constitution, or the Family Amendment as it's known, and hopefully you will have the text of the proposed changes uh, printed in front of you for ease of reference. Professor Mahoney teaches and researches constitutional law and child law at UCC, and the particular overlap of his interests make him a really extraordinarily apt person to discuss this uh, proposed amendment. As well as being the director of the Child Law Clinic in UCC, he is a former special rapporteur for child protection for the Irish government. I think it's very fair to say he is one of the country's foremost experts on the topic of this uh, particular amendment, and there's, there's really no one better to talk us through some of its nuances and complexities. So, Connor, hand over to you, and thank you very much for being with us. Well, thanks very much to David uh, for the introduction and to Aileen for the, the invitation to, to be with you here this evening. 
referendum campaigns are always, uh, I think, a time where, as David mentioned, it's, it's really important that those of us who are working with issues relating to constitutional law in our day-to-day -day, uh, try to make an effort to, to bring uh, some of our experience, I guess, to the wider public because uh, while obviously there will be some people who, who are very closely engaged with these things and, and, and make a lot of effort to keep up with constitutional law, I think it's, it's not realistic to think that everyone's going to do that and for a lot of people uh, it's really only during referendum campaigns that, that they really uh, have to, to think more deeply about it. Um, and so uh, it, it's, it's always good for us to get the opportunity to, to try and play a role in that process. Um, so, as David mentioned in uh, his introduction, I'm going to focus on the family amendment. This referendum is unusual in that we have two uh, referendums in one, and that's even, I think, causing a little bit of confusion uh, in some quarters. Uh, we, it's not that we haven't had two votes on the same day before, we have, but uh, usually, they, they are more, more commonly, they would be quite distinct from each other and there would be no danger of confusion. This is perhaps a little bit different because both of the proposals relate to Article 41 of the Constitution. What I'm going to say in my remarks, I'm going to pitch this at a level where I'm going to assume that people have no knowledge. I know looking around the room there are people here who are coming with quite a bit of knowledge. Um, so I'll ask you to be a little patient maybe for the first few minutes as I run through some of the basics because I just want to make sure uh, that we don't leave anybody behind if you're coming to this maybe from a, a position of not having uh, studied this in any detail in, in the past. Uh, but that's the first basic point I want to make is that there are two separate votes and people can vote yes yes no no or yes no in any combination they want the two votes are not uh, in any way contingent on each other so the 39th amendment on the family will be proposing to amend article 41 in respect of its definition of the family uh, so i'm going to spend a few minutes just sketching out what the current position is because uh, we can't understand the effect of the amendment unless we understand what it is we have now um, so what we have now is what we will keep if we vote no uh, and, and then towards the end, I'll, I'll speak a little bit about how that might change in the event that we vote yes. So the language of Article 41, it's not the, the easiest read uh, in the Constitution. It says the state recognises the family as the natural and primary fundamental unit group of society, as a moral institution possessing inalienable and imprescriptible rights, antecedent and superior to all positive law. Uh, I, I was doing a piece of work recently and came across a great quote from John A. Costello in the Doyle back in 1937 when this was being debated in which he highlighted that language of inalienable and imprescriptible rights. He said, I do not know what it means. Uh, and I think a lot of people who uh, read that probably don't know what it means. Um, in, in a sense, I'm going to skip past that a little bit because it's not really what the amendment is focusing on. Um, the more important parts uh, come later. It goes on to say, the state therefore guarantees to protect the family in its constitution and authority. Uh, that word constitution there is confusing. It's referring to the constitution of the family in the sense of keeping the family constituted as a family unit, keeping families together, uh, and protect the family in its authority. So essentially the state guarantees that it will try to keep families together and it will respect decisions made by the family as a necessary basis of social order so on. I won't waste time on the rest of that. Uh, and the really important one for our purposes today, the state pledges, to guard, uh, pledges itself to guard with special care the institution of marriage on which the family is founded and to protect it against attack. So Article 41.3.1, in that phrase, the institution of marriage on which the family is founded, that's really the operative part for the purposes of this referendum, links 
family and marriage. And as we'll see in a moment when I look at some of the case law, the courts have always taken it, therefore, that it, it means in Article 41, where it refers to the family, that it refers only to the family based on marriage. And other family forms are not captured within the scope of Article 41. So I'll say a little more about what that means in practice. Most recently, we added in marriage may be contracted in accordance with law by two persons without distinction as to their sex. So a marital family can be opposite sex or same sex, uh, but there must be a marriage. Without a marriage, there is no family within the meaning of Article 41 uh, as it currently stands. So looking then at, at that phraseology that the state pledges to guard with special care of the institution of marriage and to protect it against attack, what does that mean? It means in practical terms that the state is prohibited from treating marital families less favourably than other types of families. We saw that in particular in Murphy versus Attorney General. That was a case about taxation. Uh, the tax scheme at the time uh, resulted in a situation where people paid more tax if they were married than they would have paid if they weren't married. Uh, and that was found to be an attack on the institution of marriage and unconstitutional contrary to Article 41.3. The flip side of that is that the state is or may be permitted in certain circumstances to discriminate in favour of the marital family, to have incentives to marry and to treat married couples more favourably than other uh, forms of families. For a long time we understood that as being almost a, a blanket position case of OB versus S from 1984 appeared to establish a blanket rule that any law that appeared on its face to discriminate uh, between married couples and, and, and unmarried couples in the sense of treating the married couples better, uh, that that would be uh, justified by reference to the obligation in Article 41.3 to guard marriage with special care. Most recently, however, just last month in the O'Mara decision, uh, that was qualified quite significantly in, in, with the Supreme Court saying that it's not a blanket position. Uh, it may be that the state is permitted to discriminate in favour of marriage, but it will need to provide a justification for that. Uh, that the mere existence of Article 41.3 won't be enough to smooth over that position, that some form of justification supporting that discrimination will have to be provided if it is to survive an Article 40.1 challenge, um, which of course the law in O'Mara didn't. Uh, so that's the, the, the kind of basic position, but the, the issue that's at the nub of the referendum and the reason why we're having a referendum really goes down to this definition, definitional issue, uh, which is the fact that the family, with a capital F in uh, Article 41, and the, we may speak later on about, about some of the significance of the use of a capital F, in some of these provisions and otherwise, and ironically I appear to have omitted the capital F in uh, <laughs> uh, my quotation on that slide. Uh, in the Nicolau case, uh, the court very clearly established that that text means that the only family protected by Article 41 is the family based on marriage. Nicolau was a case brought by an unmarried father whose child was being placed for adoption uh, without his consent. The adoption law at the time only required the consent of the unmarried mother. The unmarried father had no say in the process whatsoever. Nicolau challenged this under the Constitution, including under Article 41, and the court said to him very simply, you can't rely on Article 41 because you are not a member of a family that is protected by Article 41. And that decision has been reaffirmed in multi, you know, multiple other cases similar to Nicolau, including JKNVW, WOR versus EH, uh, that have reaffirmed that position. Uh, the Murray case did clarify that you don't have to have children, that simple, a, a simple marriage is enough, a married couple without children are still considered to be a family for the purposes 
of Article 41, the Murray case, uh, was a case brought by a married couple who had been given uh, life in prison for, for murdering a guard uh, and who wanted to exercise their right to found a family while in prison. They, that action wasn't ultimately successful, but uh, it was found that they did meet the criteria of being a family within the meaning of Article 41. Uh, and most recently, uh, MACD versus L would have reaffirmed all this uh, again in 2010. MACD versus L was a case brought by uh, a lesbian couple who had had a child using sperm donated by a friend of theirs, fell into a dispute uh, with him around guardianship and access arrangements. Uh, and uh, at the time, this was before the marriage equality referendum, so they couldn't get married at that time. And it was found that as an unmarried uh, couple, that they had no rights under Article 41 of the Constitution. Uh, now, one of the, the questions that arises here is around what's the practical effect of this? You know, how much does that really matter? Uh, and in lots of cases, not so much. In lots of cases, the legislation, which is really where most of the work in family law is done, is at the legislative level rather than the constitutional level. And in many cases, legislation since 1937 has evolved so that quite a number of these uh, discriminations and different differential treatments have been ironed out. Uh, but there are some that remain, and of course there's always potential that more could arise in the future. Uh, so if we try and narrow down the focus and say what's really different, you know, what really matters about the fact that uh, you have some family forms that have constitutional rights and others that don't. Uh, well, here are the, the few things I would like to highlight in that respect. If we look at unmarried mothers, Unmarried mothers do have constitutional rights in respect of their children. That was established as far back as 1980 in the case of G versus Mbordu But the court found that those rights did not derive from Article 41, because obviously there's no marriage. Those rights are protected by the personal rights guarantee of Article 40.3. Um, you might say, why does that matter? Because they have constitutional rights. Well, it matters because the phrasing of Article 40.3 is quite different. It doesn't have that lofty natural law language that John A. Costello didn't understand. Uh, it doesn't have inalienable and imprescriptible rights. It only protects rights as far as practicable. And in a moment, I'll give a concrete example of why that matters. From unmarried fathers' perspective, historically, and right up to uh, last month, our understanding with unmarried fathers was that, that they were affected more significantly uh, in that Nicolau and the subsequent case law appeared to suggest that they had no constitutional rights whatsoever, not even under Article 40.3 uh, in respect of their children. And so therefore, uh, they would have no recourse that they could use to challenge any laws or policies which seem to, to refuse to recognise their family relationships with their children. The O'Mara case seemed to suggest they do have constitutional rights, although from my money, the majority judgment, I'm not sure it ever exactly clarified whether those rights were deriving from Article 40.3 or from Article 41. I think probably more likely, my reading would be, it would have to be from Article 40.3. Um, a little bit more clarity on that would have been, been welcome. Uh, but certainly the, the majority did seem to be suggesting that the unmarried father may have at least some constitutional rights at this point. Um, but at best, I think, probably they're in the same position as the uh, unmarried mother in that those rights are, are of a slightly lesser nature. One concrete example of why that matters would be cases we've seen in the area of adoption. Unmarried mothers' rights and then by extension unmarried fathers' rights essentially can be restricted more easily because they are deemed to be rights that need only be protected as far as practicable and are not inalienable and imprescriptible. We've seen multiple adoption cases over the years where 
mothers placed children for adoption and changed their mind later and the court dispute arose as to whether or not the adoption could proceed without the consent of the unmarried mother. Uh, essentially in cases where it was an unmarried mother we saw multiple different judgments uh, some of which I list on the screen where the, dis where the consent was dispensed with on the basis that at this stage it wouldn't be in the best interest of the child to return that child to the natural parents after such a long gap. Whereas in a number of other cases, most uh, recently the Baby Anne case in 2006, also Reed, Reed J. H. in 1985, if that parent got married, all of a sudden they were playing a different constitutional right in that particular uh, litigation, and in those cases, even after gaps of up to three years, the child was returned to the natural parents. Um, so those cases will be quite a, a clear illustration of how uh, the married parent in those, that circumstance had stronger constitutional rights than the unmarried uh, parent. Uh, unmarried fathers, uh, up until January, I would have been saying unmarried fathers would have had no possibility of challenging any laws or policies which uh, excluded them or discriminated against them. Omara now qualifies our understanding of that. Uh, they can now seek to challenge that, whether under Article 40.3 or under Article 40.1, uh, but they still cannot rely on Article 41 and those more strongly protected rights uh, to challenge that. And the same is to be said about same-sex couples uh, based on MACD versus L. They also cannot uh, rely on Article 41 to challenge any laws or policies which uh, exclude them or discriminate against them. So the whole proposal we are voting on in simple terms is as follows, that that phrase on which the family is founded in Article 41.3.1 would be removed to break the link between marriage and family. Uh, and you could have stopped there. That would have been probably a simpler referendum and there'd be a lot less ink spilt. Uh, but what the proposal is also doing is adding in some text uh, on the right-hand side of the screen there. You see they're adding in in Article 41.1.1. The state recognises the family, whether founded on marriage or on other durable relationships. So... The big questions, really, the talking points, and I see my time is coming to an end, but this is my last slide. The talking points around this uh, really almost all focus in on that question of durable relationships. Uh, so to a, to a certain extent, the decision to add that language in rather than simply uh, remove the phrase on which the family is founded uh, has uh, become the focus of a lot of the debate. What is a durable relationship? How is that defined? Simple answer is right now, we don't know. We don't have a definition of that. Should we have? Should we expect one? Uh, I mean, my own view is that we shouldn't expect a definition of that in the text of the Constitution. That's not how constitutional law normally works. Trying to define something very, very precisely with something which is very malleable and evolves all the time, or understanding of family life. Uh, the Constitution typically does things in very open, textured, uh, vague text to precisely to allow for flexibility. Um, so I don't personally think that putting a definition of that into the text of the Constitution would be in line with our approach to other social policy issues in constitutional law. Should we define it in legislation? I mean, in family law terms, really, so much of family law is based on giving courts discretion to deal with the, the individualised circumstances of the case in front of them. We don't have a very heavily rules-based uh, system of family law in this country. We have a much more discretion-based system of family law. Uh, if you define families and give one definition of it, it's likely that that definition will almost immediately exclude people and become quite problematic. Um, so who decides what it, how it will be defined is another big talking point in the campaign. 
Um, and there's this question of, well, will it be for the courts to decide? Uh, and you'll hear that being said a lot. In the ultimate analysis, if a case ends up in court, yes, the courts will have to determine what is and what isn't a durable relationship and whether or not something comes within the, the scope of that. But, and this is the thing which has been discussed far less, the way our constitutional law typically works in cases like this is that the Oireachtas, in the first instance, will legislate and will take a view in legislation as to which durable relationships are worthy of protection and which are not, or the government and its policy will do the same thing. Cases will only get to court in the event that somebody feels excluded by those laws or policies and challenges them. Then the court will have to decide, yes, in the ultimate analysis, which, what's in and what's out. But as a matter of social policy, the overwhelming dynamic in our courts is that they would be extremely deferential to any judgment made by the office or by the government in the first instance. Um, so the idea that the courts are going to be the only ones having a say on this, uh, to my mind, is really devoid of context in, in how Irish constitutional law works. So I'm happy to come back to that in Q&A. Uh, the last point I want to make, as I'm slightly over time, is about whether or not differential treatment between marital and extramarital families will still be permitted. Uh, because, again, you're hearing some people saying, that is this about trying to equalise them and saying, well, actually, now we must always treat all families the same. Uh, my view is that looking at the principles established in the case, some of the cases I cited earlier, my view would be that because of the fact that Article 41.3 and that obligation to guard marriage with special care and protect it against attack is still going to be in the text of Article 41, that that will still potentially provide cover for certain laws that might treat marital relationships differently or more favourably than relationships not based on marriage. But the O'Mara principle would still apply, which is that any such differential treatment would need to be justified if it were to survive an equality-based challenge. Um, so that's trying to cram quite a bit into 15 minutes, uh, but as I said, we can go, we're can we trying to leave as much time as possible for Q&A, so I'm very happy to go into any of those points in more detail at that stage, but for now, I will leave it there. Thank you very much. terrific overview of some of the, the biggest issues that we're facing in that referendum and as we say we'll have plenty of time to unpack those further with the Q&A later. <coughs> then my great pleasure to welcome Professor Laura Catalan from the University of Limerick to discuss the 40th Amendment, uh, sometimes known as the Care Amendment, which relates to both removing Article 41.2 of the Constitution and inserting a new Article 42.B. And Laura is really the, the perfect person to discuss this with us. Alongside teaching and researching constitutional law across a range of areas, she is probably the person who has paid the most attention to the meaning and uh, uh, purpose and use of Article 41.2. So you can really uh, uh, give us some fantastic, definitive answers about that. And so I think she is probably the person in our field uh, best equipped to inform us what all this means and what it might do. In addition to this, she addressed the uh, Oireachtas Committee on Gender Equality and the Citizens' Assembly on these topics. So she really uh, has a, a huge uh, degree of knowledge to share with us. So Laura, thanks so much for being with us and, and we're looking forward to your contribution. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm going to try in the space of 15 minutes just to try and give you some background on what has become, I think, the more controversial um, of these two referendums. And I think it's useful to start with the wording, which I think you all have in front of you as well. But um, there are sometimes kind of 
misconceptions about what the wording actually says or doesn't say. So it's worth reading it again. Uh, so it says that this, in particular, the state recognizes that by her life within the home, woman gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. The state shall therefore endeavor to ensure that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labor to the neglect of their duties in the home. Now, a lot of people, um, when they read that article of the Constitution, ask, where did that come from? How did that make its way into the Constitution? And there are lots of different influences um, behind it. Um, certainly a lot of um, historians would argue that de Valera's own personal circumstances would have been a huge driving factor on this. Um, many people know that de Valera um, was sent home to live and be brought up by his grandmother in Ireland when his mother couldn't afford to work and mind him and his mother stayed in New York and we've seen in his in his writings and in his archives um, how deeply he was affected by the loss of his mother um, out of his life uh, and he wrote quite a bit about the importance of a mother in, in a child's life so that was certainly an influence but there would have been a lot more influences than just that going into this particular provision um, the guy up in the corner there is John Hearn. He's the lawyer that uh, wrote our constitution and he was a comparative law scholar. He would have been very familiar with the European constitutions of the day and all of those constitutions had references to protection of maternity. So this wasn't a uniquely Irish idea, this idea that we somehow protect the idea of maternity. What maybe was more unique to Ireland was the fact of, um, or the influence maybe of Catholic social thinking and Catholic social teaching and there were a number of people involved in the drafting of our constitution um, members of the Jesuit community for example but in particular the guy at the bottom here John Charles McQuaid who later became an, an archbishop um, and who had maybe less influence than some people may often think but certainly he had a huge amount of influence on this particular provision and in fact his wording uh, that he sent into the committee was the wording that was actually used in the final version and um, so his wording is the, the extract here that you can see in the blue and that was taken from a publication from the Vatican a papal encyclical called Rerum Novarum that spoke about how women were by nature fitted for homework um, so obviously this, this was a very strong influence behind the idea um, and why it ended up in the Constitution. But you might also then ask, well, what was the point in putting it into the Constitution? What, what was intended that it would achieve by putting it in there? And there are some very interesting quotes from the debates in the Dáil. Um, because when this originally, when the Constitution was being debated, there were protests by women's groups. And Eamon de Valera couldn't understand this and um, couldn't understand how there was opposition to it he's saying you know this is all about protecting mothers what what's the problem here um, but then people started asking him more questions saying well how are you going to actually achieve the aim that's set out here how are you going to ach achieve this idea that mothers shouldn't be forced through economic necessity to work outside the home if what they really want to do is to stay in the home is the state actually going to do anything to help them um, and de Valera gave a kind of a typical politician-y answer to that, in that he didn't really answer the question. Um, but what he did say was this, so he started giving examples, and he said, well, look, 
if a man was getting some sort of service from the state or some sort of contribution from the state, I would like to ensure that the state would be getting something in return. The state would be getting something back. So in other words, if the state was providing payments to a man, he'd have to complete some sort of community service in return for the payment. But De Valeria said, but a woman, a mother, is providing such an important service to the community already that I wouldn't be requiring anything in return. Um, so by being a mother, that, that somehow would qualify as being able to, to get some sort of payment from the state. This was the kind of vague assertion that there might be some sort of um, economic benefit out of it. The problem was that that was never made explicit in the wording and that was never something that the state actually did in its policies, never actually provided any benefits for women coming out of um, that particular article. Uh, and I might come back to the wording again uh, in a minute just to show why that never happened and it's, and it's a particular weakness in the wording. But first of all, another question that people often ask with regard to this provision that is, you know, it's been in the Constitution since 1937, what has it ever done in law? Has it ever come up in the case law? And when it has come up, what have the courts actually said about this article? And funnily enough, it hasn't actually come up very often in case law. Um, it took a number of years for it to arise as a distinct issue in the case law. And most of the cases where it has arisen, it has received a, a sort of an unusual reading by the courts, and very often a, quite a negative reading by the courts. And the de Borca versus the Attorney General, I think, is a good illustration of that. Um, because this is a case which challenged the law which had effectively excluded women from juries uh, since 1927. And the law was declared unconstitutional in the end. It was struck down. It was a great uh, win for the women of Ireland. But uh, the Chief Justice O'Higgins in the case, he disagreed with his colleagues. And he interprets women's exclusion from juries as conferring a benefit on women. So he said it's not about excluding them from the jury, this is a benefit, uh, and he says it's almost mandatory uh, under Article 41.2 because otherwise you'd be forcing women to serve on duties and you'd be taking them away from their duties in the home. So that was how he was reading Article 41.2, and that's just one example of, of a kind of where we've had a strange reading in the courts. The Denny and Loud cases mentioned there, in those cases the provision was used to justify discrimination against men. In the case where you had social welfare payments being given to women, and when this was challenged on equality grounds, um, the basis that the courts decided that these people would not win their cases was Article 41.2, that again this was about conferring a benefit on women. But eventually a case did arise before the courts where Article 41.2 was looked at in more detail. Um, and it was in the context of a marital separation case and in particular in relation to the distribution of property. Because at the time we didn't have joint ownership uh, legislation and the house in this particular uh, case, L versus L, was in the name of the husband only. Now there was a rule uh, at the time that if the wife had contributed to the mortgage payments or the purchase price of the house, then she could gain a beneficial interest in the house at least. However, in this particular case, Mrs. L was a housewife so she didn't have any independent means. She couldn't possibly have contributed to mortgage payments or the price of the house. So there was no way she could possibly gain a beneficial interest in her own family home. 
But instead, her lawyers decided to make an argument on the basis of Article 41.2. And they said, look at this article in the Constitution, the language around it. The idea is that you're prioritising the role of the housewife. This is the ideal. This is what we want, women to be at home raising their children. And the state is given, given a duty to protect this role. Um, and so then those people who choose that role should not be put at a disadvantage in law. And when the case came before the High Court, Mr Justice Barr agreed with these arguments. And he saw the ridiculousness of a situation whereby the Constitution prizes the housewife and uses all this grand language to tell us how important and what they're doing for the common good and so on, but yet they're being put at a disadvantage in law because the woman who goes out to work, who can earn her own money, can then contribute to the purchase price of the house or the mortgage payments and gain a beneficial interest in the family home. Whereas the woman who, who performs the constitutionally preferred role of wife and mother doesn't have her own money and can't gain that advantage. So Mr Justice Barr used Article 41.2 to give rights in this scenario. However, it was appealed to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court in what feels like a pretty angry judgment, actually. Um, and they were very critical of Mr. Uh, Justice Barr because they said he had overstepped his role. Um, because judges, in theory at least, are not supposed to make law. They are supposed to interpret the law and apply the law. And the Supreme Court said that what Mr. Justice Barr had done was to create something new. So they said th these rights don't exist in Article 41.2, he is creating new law, and he doesn't have the authority to do that. So what this case really did was to render this provision legally meaningless, in effect, because it was felt there are no rights coming from this, and there were no cases after that point which ever really gained anything beneficial from it. There was one or two cases in the um, family and separation context, but nothing really concrete coming from it. And so, on the basis of the case law, we can say with a fair degree of confidence that it doesn't do anything for women. So there is no right to remain in the home, certainly no right to economic support. It's not as if you can take a case to, to court saying that the state should ensure that I can stay at home. Um, it, it appears, in fact, that there are no legal rights arising from it, at least no legally enforceable um, obligation arising out of it. Worse again, as the Chief Justice O'Donnell pointed out recently in the O'Mara decision, um, it may not even apply to all women or all mothers. In fact, it's likely that it just applies to married mothers. And so it is particularly restrictive. And I think it's important to make these points because I think there are a certain percentage of people who may be considering voting no because there's a fear that if you take it out of the Constitution that you're somehow losing something but you are not losing something if you never had anything to lose in the first place. Okay, So this has never given us anything. Um, so then let's look at suggestions. So there have been a number of different groups looking at this over the years, and unfortunately none of them ever really came to a consensus about what we should do with this article. So there's been various recommendations, but none of them have suggested retaining it. It's worth noting. Um, but there have been various suggestions about uh, reforming it, making it gender neutral, making various amendments. The most recent reform recommendation we had was from the Citizens' Assembly on Gender Equality. Now this was a response to the fact that in 2018 
the government proposed to just delete this article from the constitution, just get rid of it, not put anything in instead. But uh, a number of carers' organisations, the National Women's Council, they objected to this saying, well, we haven't yet had a conversation about what we want to do with this article. So that's why the Citizens' Assembly was set up, for purely for that purpose. And having heard from loads of different organisations and experts in this area, they voted overwhelmingly, not just to replace the article, but to replace it with a strong form amendment. And they were very clear that they wanted the replacement to be meaningful and to carry rights for people and not just to be symbolic. So the wording that was suggested was that the state would take, or the state shall take, I should say, reasonable measures to support care within the home and the wider community. And then the all-party Arachthus committee that was set up to consider those recommendations also endorsed that wording. Now that's not what we've been given. So the wording that we've been given is this, that the state recognises that the provision of care by members of the family to one another by reason of the bonds that exist among them gives to society a support without which the common good cannot be achieved and shall strive to support such provision. Now I mentioned to you a minute ago that the wording of our current provision is pretty weak because it says that the state will endeavour to support care. Endeavour to support means they have to try. Um, that's not a legally enforceable obligation. That's not something you can really go to court and say they're not trying. And this new wording, it says that the state shall strive to support. And um, there's been discussion in the media and in other places about what the difference is. I think Ms. Justice Baker recently said that to endeavour means to try and to strive means to try a little bit harder. <laughs> um, so again, you have to make up your minds whether there's much difference there. But to sum up on, on this proposal, first, as I mentioned a minute ago, it is important to say that if we do decide to amend the Constitution in this way, we are not going to lose anything because the provision has never actually given us anything in the first place. So we won't lose any rights, recognitions, anything like that. On the other side of it, it's probably not going to create any new rights or obligations either. You're primarily replacing a symbolic provision which is rather insulting and patronising at the moment with another symbolic provision which looks a lot nicer than the one that's there. Um, other issues, again, things that have come up in, in discussions on this, is that it only recognises care in the family context. Um, the Citizens' Assembly wording would have recognised care in the wider context. Now, the government has um, explained its reasoning on this. They said that uh, they considered looking at it in the wider context, but that care is primarily commercial in, in the wider context. So that was their reasoning for um, restricting it to the family. Other issues which have come up in relation to this is the fact that persons with disabilities are not recognised at all um, in this provision and that's something that has I think really come to the fore in the last few days with a number of people arguing um, that or saying that they will be voting no on this basis. Um, and again I think that's a really useful discussion that people should be having. Um, there is the, uh, the government has suggested that maybe it's worth looking at um, disability rights in another context, so maybe in terms of a reform more generally of our equality provision, which might be useful. Again, that's a personal decision that people have to make uh, and people have to weigh up these things. Uh, again, on the other side of that, voting no as a protest vote is still 
accepting the status quo. If you're voting no in the hope that something might change, um, from what we've seen historically at least, that's never really worked out very well when you consider the, the Shannon's referendum and these kind of things. Again, these are things that people have to weigh up in terms of your own personal feeling on this. What the amendment will do if it's passed is that it will remove this language that we have uh, that says that women but not men have duties that they are required to attend to in the home. So at least it will do that. But the bottom line is that it's unlikely to have any substantive legal effect one way or another. And that's whether whether if you did include care in the in the community or whether if you did include rights of persons with disabilities and so on, again it's a primarily symbolic amendment anyway. So it's not really affecting these things in a concrete way. So I'll leave it at that, but again, I'll be happy to take any questions that people have. Thank you so much, Laura, for a terrific and really uh, comprehensive uh, tour of those proposed changes. So having discussed the two amendments separately, it's time to discuss, I suppose, the changes more broadly, the, the fact that they're coming together, the, the broader implications of this uh, set of referendums. And for that, I'd like to be joined by the Chair of Tricon and Trinity, uh, Professor Aileen Kavanagh, Professor of Constitutional Law and Governance. And Aileen has published on very many aspects of constitutional law and theory in Ireland, the UK, Canada, beyond, and has published on the topic of referendums in Ireland, with me, indeed, yes. before, and about a year ago on Valentine's Day, held her inaugural lecture in Trinity on the subject of referendums. So she loves them so much, she's willing to give up her Valentine's Day to talk about them, and we're delighted that she's chosen to give up this evening to talk to us as well. Thank you, Aileen. Well, thanks, David, um, uh, for that kind introduction. It is my first referendum that I'm participating in uh, since coming back to Ireland, having worked in the UK for many years. And I don't take for granted at all. I feel really um, uh, uh, appreciative of the fact that I have a vote and I have a voice in this debate, as everybody does in this room. That is not to be taken for granted. Not many uh, constitutions across Europe or the world allow for this ongoing referendum on important social issues. So a constitution, you know, it sets up the framework for government, it expresses the main principles on which the state is founded, and it's not just a lawyer's law, it's a people's law, and we have to be able to pick up that document and see ourselves in that. It has to resonate with us and with Irish society uh, today. And both of these uh, proposed changes, both of these referendums, speak to that symbolic uh, sense of identity. Are we looking at the Constitution and seeing our families? Are we seeing how we understand women uh, and their role in contemporary society? There is a dimension simply of the expressive value of, of, of it being up to date. But in my comments, I'm going to focus uh, more on the care referendum, so it follows on very well from what Laura was saying. And I'm not going to talk about case law, but, I, but I'm just going to um, uh, consider some of the main arguments that have been made in the debate. So when I first encountered this Article 41 to, this is the bit that's uh, redlined on your sheet of paper, uh, called colloquially the woman in the home provision, even though it doesn't say the woman's place is in the home, but it comes very close, and therefore I think um, uh, it's a useful 
uh, descriptor. So when I saw this first as a student, I thought it should be deleted. And I dreamt of a day when I might be able to vote in a referendum uh, uh, to do so. And since then, and particularly since becoming a mother, I have to say the wording there has become even more jarring uh, uh, to me. It's undoubtedly true, I do not doubt for a moment, that women who dedicate their lives uh, to um, uh, looking after their family and primarily in the home, they undoubtedly contribute enormously to their children, to the family and to society and common good as a whole. I don't doubt that for a moment. But I bridle at the fact um, that the vision of woman, notice that it doesn't talk about women in their plurality, women in their diversity, but rather woman, thereby conjuring an ideal of womanhood. Uh, uh, I find it um, univocal uh, uh, and restricted. It eulogizes a woman's life within the home, adding that if women work outside the home, they thereby neglect their duties within the home. The language of this provision is sexist, it is paternalistic, it is narrow-minded, and it is at variance with the generous and enlightened guarantees of equality, uh, personal integrity, and fundamental rights that exist elsewhere in our wonderful constitution, Bonrachtnehair. So, obviously I would support the deletion of this and uh, have my dreams come true. Well, it's, it's, not, it's not as simple as, as uh, I would have hoped because we are not given the singular opportunity to decide yes or no on this, but rather it is bundled together, as Laura explained, with a complex uh, provision on care, basically recognizing the value of care in the family. So in one vote, uh, you have to choose whether you would, uh, in one singular act, delete this uh, uh, woman in the home provision, let's call it that, uh, and replace it with a controversial provision on care. And therein lies the problem. A bundled referendum decision is complex uh, and difficult for voters. It's also hard after the fact to read what did the people want? Why did they vote yes? Why did they vote no? There are so many reasons for either uh, vote that it's hard then afterwards to deduce what uh, the will of the people was uh, on this particular um, provision. Okay, um, so uh, let's have a look at the care provision and that's also uh, on your handout. Um, care is a very broad term, obviously. It, this is also a very awkward uh, provision. It's garnered a lot of criticism, and I'll just go through them here. One is the claim that it is implicitly sexist, that this provision is implicitly sexist. The other criticism I've seen is that it prioritizes or presumes that only care within the home is of value. Uh, it excludes uh, any obligation to consider care elsewhere. And thirdly, that it is a pious aspiration with no real commitment behind it. So, in other words, the argument that it doesn't go far enough. Now, many argue that we could remedy those defects by creating a stronger and what's called a justiciable obligation. In other words, a claim right that people could take to court and say, uh, you know, my constitutional right has been violated and that could prompt 
um, a remedy given by the court. So let's just go through them briefly. Is it implicitly sexist? Um, I don't see that it is implicitly sexist. Sexism is stereotyping on grounds of sex. This provision is written in gender neutral uh, uh, terms. It expresses the value of care given by any member of the family. I just don't know how you could come up with any provision uh, that recognizes care that wouldn't fall foul of this criticism. So I don't see it as implicitly sexist. Does it presume or prioritize or uh, that only care within the home is valuable? I, I would say it does not presume that. It values care within the home. It asks us and asks the state bodies to recognize care within the home, but that doesn't preclude any number of pieces of legislation or indeed a sense of obligation in government to provide uh, care within society as a whole. What about the argument that it's a pious aspiration with no teeth, uh, intentionally so, so that the government could be let off the hook, they have nice words in the constitution and then back to business as usual. Well, you know, this provision could certainly be stronger as, as Laura outlined in the Citizens Assembly recommended stronger wording saying that the state shall take reasonable measures uh, to provide care. So you could widen the scope to care in society as well as in home, and you could strengthen the nature of the obligation. Notice, however, that nobody is arguing. I haven't heard anybody saying you need a concrete claim right to a care allowance or particular detailed uh, demands in the Constitution. As Connor said, that's not typically what constitutions do. They enunciate general principles guiding lights for the government, for legislation, uh, and for judicial uh, uh, decision-making. So, so it could be stronger, uh, uh, that's true. But let's look at the option of um, having a justiciable claim, because many uh, people who argue for a stronger provision make this argument that um, what we need is, is a claim right that we can take to court. <laughs> Okay, so think about litigation. Think about how hard it is, how long it takes to bring a case that would go all the way to the Supreme Court to get your uh, verdict that yes, your right has been violated and then you get a, a remedy. Litigation is typically focused on a narrow set of uh, uh, facts. It's expensive, it's lengthy, and so on. Now there are interest groups like FLAC and so on that can support litigation, but it is not the be all and end all. It too would be simply a start. If we, uh, you know, if we had in the constitution that claim right, uh, a justiciable claim, that would only be the beginning. That doesn't deliver uh, on care in the here and now. So the important point to remember here, I think, is that rights need legislation more than litigation, because legislation provides a detailed framework, it can be enacted in a shorter space of time, it can, can cover competing demands. Think of how much is it included under the concept of care, from child care to care homes to elderly care to those with disabilities and so on. What you need is social security, social welfare, uh, anti-discrimination acts, disability in employment acts, etc. This is detailed work, it is complex work, 
you're not finding that in constitutional texts uh, uh, in general, uh, nor, nor should you. Okay, so I just want to end with a few comments on what are the consequences of voting yes versus the consequences of voting no. So, so here, here's what I think are the consequences of voting yes. So, so the first consequence is that you would delete the woman in the home provision. So you would get rid of that woman in the home uh, provision. That's a concrete change. That's a difference on the status quo. That provision is gone. That's, that's a concrete deliverable uh, on a yes vote. Uh, the second is that you would include within the Constitution some recognition of some care. Not all care, not enough care, not a strong enough obligation, but something, somewhere to start. That is why many of the political parties are supporting yes, yes, and. In other words, we take this uh, reform now, and we use that to leverage further change uh, in the future. The, the other possible benefit would be um, a spur to policy making. So many ministers have said around the cabinet table, competing resources, there's the climate, there is um, uh, immigration, there's the housing crisis, there's a health you know, demand, etc. And to be able to say, look, the people voted for recognition of some care in the home. We need to put our money where our mouths where we need to deliver on this. You may be very cynical or skeptical about those claims, but it is plausible that an argument could be made that if there's a yes vote on some care, this could be leveraged politically. The, the, the final um, possible advantage would be that it would play a role in judicial decision making. Now, on its own, this provision on care uh, cannot ground a complete case that you can go to the Supreme Court and say, I have a right to care. That, that cannot happen. However, judges interpreting the Constitution will look at all the provisions that are on your sheet. They're looking for, um, if you like, a composite case that builds up from the different provisions. They are looking very closely at what is written in the text. And if there is a recognition of care within the home, by any family member, by women or men, this could make a difference. It's hard to predict exactly, but it, but it could. And this is all, uh, it, um, uh, aside from, if you like, the symbolic uh, change. What does it say about us if we get rid of the uh, woman in the home provision and embrace care as a constitutional value? Not something to get euphoric about, but something. We say that we care about care. Okay, what are the consequences then of a no? Well, the, a no preserves the status quo. A no vote is an active decision to preserve the status quo. So we keep the women in the home provision. We have no explicit recognition of any care uh, then in the Constitution. Uh, definitely a no vote would embarrass the government. Um, so, you know, any government, they've gone all out. They want a yes vote on this. They would not have proposed this wording if they weren't invested, and they have invested politically. Yeah, it's embarrassing for them. And that may be gratifying. I think that gratification is typically short-lived. You know, the policy machine will move on, uh, and so that's something, something to think about. Now, many people say, We'll vote no. We show the government that this is not good enough, and that prompts a rerun. Well, 
you know, it may or may not prompt a rerun. It is not going to prompt a rerun, it seems to me, in the next couple of years, maybe in five years, ten years. This is all uh, hypothetical. Previous issues that have been rerun are, one, the EU treaties, where basically there was an external forcing to rerun um, uh, some of those uh, referendums, and then abortion. And on the abortion issue, the law could not be changed until the constitution was changed. Uh, and the pressure uh, and the arguments of justice and uh, uh, urgency were strong in those uh, cases. Not so on the issue of care. Not because care is not of the utmost importance, but because legislation can be enacted, regulations can be put in place, schemes can be put in place without needing to rerun this referendum again uh, on care. So, so ultimately it's a risk assessment. Do you um, decide, and this is the conundrum that we all face, all of us who care deeply about care, do we say yes to what is put on the table now, however limited it is, however uh, many shortcomings they are, or do we say no in the hope, in the wish, that it may come back again in our lifetime? Uh, that's the conundrum we face, even if we care deeply about care. So, um, unfortunately, that's all we have time to. I know, I know we, have, um, we have further questions, but uh, all that we have time to do is to thank you for attending. And uh, I think these debates are going to continue for the next week and a half. And those of us who are citizens have to make up our mind. And I, I wish us all well. If you could join me in thanking our panel, who are terrific. Thank mm -hmm. you.